Hello! We're glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And again, we're really glad that you've joined us today because we are right in the middle of a great series that we're calling The Four Faces of Jesus. And we're calling it that because we're investigating and exploring the idea of what do we think of when we think of Jesus? So many times we can close our eyes and we get a picture of Jesus that we get from the various books that we've read or pictures we've seen. In fact, most of us, especially in America, if we close our eyes and think about Jesus, we think of a man, white man, with brown hair, long hair, and a beard, with maybe some soft expressions, wearing a, a linen robe. And that's, that's our idea of who Jesus is in different other times and other places, that view of Jesus was quite different as well. And hopefully we understand that that mental picture we have of Jesus is not fully accurate, nor could it ever, uh, unless somebody went back in time and had a snapshot of, of Jesus. Um, and nevertheless, it, it points us to a, a greater difficulty, which we're not going to understand the way Jesus looked in the flesh exactly. But the important thing is when we stop and think of Jesus, what are the characteristics that we think of? When we think of Jesus, what do we think of? And we've discussed previously the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh. This is what the people confessed uh, time and time again throughout the New Testament. We've looked at Jesus as the Son of Man. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully human, that he spoke of himself as the Son of Man, the human one. And as we can see in Matthew 13 and in verse 57, when Jesus is in Nazareth, he tells them that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is also in parallel accounts in Mark 6 in Luke as well. In Matthew 16, 14 in parallel accounts when Jesus asks his disciples who uh, people say that he, the Son of Man, is. Uh, they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, or one of the prophets. And so this is another constant theme that we see as well. In Luke 13, 33, Jesus, speaking of himself, says that he must go on his way today and tomorrow and the day following. Uh, that's a good Hebraism about some short period of time. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And... So there's many other texts uh, in Matthew 21, 11, 46, and Mark 6, Luke 7, John 4, 19, 7, 49, 17, uh, where other people either speak of Jesus as a prophet or Jesus calls himself a prophet. And this is another one of those way, uh, aspects of Jesus that's been often neglected because there is this insistence in Christianity that Jesus is more than just a prophet. And that's absolutely important, as we saw with Son of God and Son of Man. But, he is a prophet. And we really cannot understand who Jesus is and what he has said and done unless we understand him in terms of being a prophet and his very important prophetic role in the history of how God has interacted with mankind. And so let's spend some time today considering Jesus the prophet to understand from the Old Testament who prophets are and what they do, and how Jesus speaks and acts like a prophet, and why that's so important. And that's one thing we've been constantly emphasizing throughout our study. Jesus lived and died as a first century Palestinian Jew. And so the only way we're ever going to make sense of Jesus is by understanding uh, the Old Testament, and what the Old Testament says about the one who is going to come. And 
the way things were going in the time period Jesus lived, which is also called the Second Temple Judaism. Now, in the Old Testament, we have a lot of prophets, but the role of the prophet is primarily defined by Moses, Samuel, and Elijah. We also see Elisha and the writing prophets, guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and the other twelve minor prophets, so to speak. Moses spoke with Yahweh, God, face to face, as with a friend, and he provided the instruction of God, the Torah, to Israel in Exodus 31.18-33.11. Samuel, a few generations later, judged Israel according to what God told him as a prophet, 1 Samuel 3-8. through When Ahab and Jezebel led Israel far astray, God empowered Elijah not just with the word, with a message, but also with the ability to raise the dead, to declare his the divinity of God through the fire coming down from heaven in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. And we see the writing prophets. They brought all kinds of declarations in word and deed, especially the kings of Israel and Judah, the people of Israel and Judah, false prophets, and even the nation states around and influencing Israel and Judah. And it goes beyond that. In the days of Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah in particular, there's visions given, that the message is, is encoded in a vision, and the vision is, is, is set forth. And as time goes on, the images and what they represent, what they mean, become a little clearer. And so it's very hopefully important for us to see that prophets are not walking horoscopes. They don't just go around telling people uh, what's going to happen in their lives, particularly as individuals, uh, or that their primary focus is to uh, tell us 2,500 or more years after their day uh, exact sequence of political events. Uh, They're not Nostradamus in any way, shape, or form. Because prophets, first and foremost, are providing Yahweh's declarations to Israel. And all of those declarations have some relevance to the people they're first spoken to. Most of the time, the prophets uh, are, are raised up to exhort people to follow Yahweh faithfully. And especially when they're not doing that. In fact, if you look throughout the prophets, the, the primary message is, look, you're sinning. Knock it off, repent, change your ways, or else really bad things are going to happen to you. God's going to bring your enemies upon you, and you're going to get kicked out, and life's going to be miserable. Also, with the nations, okay, the nations are going to get judged for what they've done to Israel as well. And really, in the prophets, everybody turn, it doesn't turn out well for anybody. Everybody's in big trouble. Uh, but the reason the future keeps being spoken of in the prophets is because the prophets are affirming that God is faithful to the covenant. Even though Israel is faithless, God is faithful. And he's making these promises of this restoration, of this intended time, where he's going to set things right that are currently wrong. But it's very important for us to consider a couple particular messages in the prophets. And the first one is from the prophet Amos, one of those twelve prophets that we mentioned. In Amos chapter 3 and in verse 7, Amos has an important thing to tell us. For Yahweh God, Lord Yahweh, does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And that's after a long discourse. And so what Amos tries to say is, nothing's going to blindside you here. God is going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. He's going to tell through his prophets what he is going to do. And so you should be able to see it through a prophet. Now some of them are in visions, like Daniel. Daniel sees the uh, time from his day all the way to the day of Jesus and a little beyond through visions. But that information is given. And throughout Israel's history, there is information about the way forward. God has never abandoned his people without an idea of the way forward. We're going to have to emphasize that over and over again. 
And one of those expectations was set forth from almost the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, where Moses said that God was going to raise up a prophet like him one day, and that Israel was supposed to listen to him and to do what he said. He also told people how to avoid false prophets, because what they say doesn't happen. It's very interesting at the end of Deuteronomy, that uh, the author of Deuteronomy, Moses is responsible for most of it, but uh, a later person reflecting back, uh, even though Joshua passed on, and maybe many others, he said that there had not yet arisen in Israel anyone like Moses, who saw God face to face. So Israel expected that prophet to come in the future. In Isaiah 61, 1-7, through 7, there's the talking about how God anoints this person to, to speak good news to the poor. It's contextually seen to be Isaiah to some extent, but this anointing to go proclaim this message, the prophetic message, is, is really something that is going to be true of the Messiah to come. And so the prophets provide Yahweh's message to Israel, and he exhorts them toward repentance, uh, lest they experience judgment for their sins, and telling what God is going to do for his people. And now we're told very explicitly from Malachi, around the year 400 B.C., to the days uh, just before Jesus, there's no prophet in the land of Israel. In fact, in, in some of the books written between those periods, called the Intertestamental Period, uh, some important decisions cannot be made because there's no prophet in the land to tell. But at the very end of Malachi, there's this prediction, this prophecy, that uh, Elijah is going to return. And then in Luke, we're told that when the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah, that the spirit of Elijah is going to be in John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 3, you can see the kind of things that John the Baptist is saying. And they're very much consistent with the Old Testament prophets, that people are supposed to love God, to act justly, not trust in their election uh, for his salvation, and a message of repentance, which in his case involved baptism. And in Matthew 11, 7-15, Jesus will say that John is an important prophet, the greatest man of his generation, the ultimate and last spokesman of the Law and the Prophets, that the Law and the Prophets prophesied until John. Which, of course, is kind of giving us the idea that something else is happening after John. And we look throughout the New Testament, especially in Jesus' ministry, Jesus consciously styling himself after the prophets, and he brings all of their exhortations to the ultimate completion. We mentioned how Moses had given the Law to Israel. Jesus declares the Gospel of the Kingdom. This is a message of repentance in Matthew 4.17. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Moses uh, would declare what Yahweh said, and, and always declared it as Yahweh saying, all the prophets always said, uh, thus says Yahweh. Jesus says, but I say unto you, in Matthew chapter 5. And the people are astonished that he taught with such authority in Matthew 7 and verse 29. As God had provided manna to Israel in the wilderness, Jesus feeds people in, in, Matthew, in Exodus 16 for the manna, and then Matthew 14, and especially in John chapter 6. As Elijah and Elisha raised the dead children of widows, Jesus raised the widow of Nain, the son of the widow of Nain, excuse me, and the people hailed him as a great prophet when he did that uh, in Luke 7. When Elijah withdrew to Horeb to commune with God, Jesus would go to the wilderness frequently to pray in John, Luke 5, 16, John 6, 16, for example. Elijah and Elisha also made demonstration of the power of God working through them. And Jesus goes around healing the sick, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind. The latter, not something not done by anybody before him, as we see in John 9, also in Matthew 4 and 11.4. And what Jesus teaches is also prophetic. So Jesus, all these miracles, all these things that Jesus is doing, he's doing very consciously in the line of the prophets. 
uh, as the ultimate prophet, as the, as, as the one upon whom all of these promises are reaching their fulfillment. But also in his teaching, it's very saturated with prophecy, both standard and apocalyptic. For instance, in Matthew 21, 33-46, Jesus repurposes Isaiah's Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. And he updates the imagery to talk about the servants who are the prophets who they, uh, the servants, the tenants beat up. And then that God would, that the master would send his son. And they would kill his son thinking that was going to somehow allow them to have the vineyard. And of course the condemnation is spoken upon them that no, the master is going to come and going to purge that. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. In Matthew 23, Jesus denounces the Pharisees, just like the prophets had denounced wicked kings and false prophets. And this is where Matthew 24 comes into play. Matthew 24, and in related passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21, Jesus sets forth in very apocalyptic yet prophetic language what would happen to Jerusalem. And it's, it seems to so many people today to be so far-fetched. All of these wild things are going on. It doesn't sound like it fits the destruction of Jerusalem. But you have to remember that all of those apocalyptic images were being used to describe the trauma after the first destruction of the temple back in 586 B.C. in a lot of ways. And that the Israelites would never, could never imagine, just like in the days of Jeremiah, that Yahweh would not abandon his temple. And so for Jesus to say that God was going to come again and destroy Jerusalem at the hand, by the hands of the Romans, that's just something very uh, difficult to, to accept and understand. Uh, but it's very important to see that he does so using the word pictures of Jeremiah, of Hosea, of Isaiah, of Daniel, and does so very consciously. And so that's why it's not surprising in Matthew 16, when Jesus uh, asks who people think he is, that they say he's, that many people think of him like a prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah, because that's exactly what he's been saying and doing, just to a little higher level. And so he is in the prophetic tradition, and very consciously so. So why does Jesus serve as that prophet when he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, a high priest of Melchizedek, and things like that? Well, Jesus has to serve as a prophet. Not just because he is there to fulfill what the law and the prophets say, but to finalize the work of the prophets. Remember, God does nothing without first revealing to the prophets in Amos 3 and verse 7. Were there times in Israel's history where there was no prophet? Sure. Uh, we can see some of them. Around 1075 B.C., when, just before Samuel, um, between 420 and 5 of the first of the uh, before Jesus, uh, between Malachi and Simeon and, and Luke 2, and, and But yet, even there, Israel had instruction and knew the way forward. But um, the prophets had still let know what had needed to take place. Moses had given the law. Um, people had told Israel to stop serving idols and to follow after the living God. And very importantly, Daniel saw the series of empires that would arise. And the trials and tribulations that the people of God would go through in the days of those empires. And the writing prophets do speak of the latter days and the events surrounding the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. And so if God is doing a great work in Jesus of Nazareth, it's going to need to be declared by a prophet. And that's exactly who he is and what he's doing. Deuteronomy 18, 15-19 is maybe only one of the few texts to prophesy the coming of Jesus as a prophet. A lot of them about the king and a lot of stuff like that. Not as many about him coming as a prophet, but it's very important for our purposes. Because Moses sees that Jesus is not going to be any prophet. He's not just rehashing the law of the people. He's not saying, thus saith Yahweh about everything. But instead that he is a new way forward. A, providing an, a new code based in what he is doing. And that people need to listen. 
Remember we said that no prophet could compare to Moses because Moses spoke to God face to face? But remember, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh who came from the Father to provide the will of the Father. And he did miraculous works like Moses in Matthew 4, 23, 25, 11, 27, and in the first 18 verses of John. And so we have every reason to expect that Jesus is going to make a complete paradigm shift because he is the tro- prophet like Moses. And Jesus comes to Israel at a most pivotal time with the most pivotal message, that in him and in his kingdom, God is fulfilling everything he promised, promised Israel. And not only to Israel, but all the way back to the patriarchs, Abraham, and even back to Adam. And that the Israel of God was now going to be centered around Jesus and his kingdom. He does this in his life, but, but most thoroughly in his death, resurrection, and ascension. That the Holy Spirit revealed these things through his apostles. That he is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. That he is the Messiah. We see that in Acts 3, for instance. The Messiah, the one like a son of man, he received an eternal dominion from the Ancient of Days. He's the promised descendant of David who would rule over the Israel and the Gentiles. In Luke 1, 33, 22, 66, 71, and many other places. But in Galatians 3, Paul makes the argument he is the seed of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will speak of him as the second Adam. Uh, where the first Adam sinned and, and introduced sin and death into the world, uh, the second Adam, Jesus, through one act of, of, of reconciliation on the cross, is able to, to accomplish forgiveness for all of those sins, and, as the firstborn of the resurrection, is the beginning of the new creation in the resurrection. Just like Adam, it was the beginning of the creation here, the first creation. And so, Jesus being the fulfillment of all that God promised in the Old Testament, can now begin the next movement in the story, to speak of the way forward, to make clear what the prophets meant when they were talking about the restoration of Israel. And of course, this is a big, this is a big hindrance and stumbling block for, is, for the Israelites at the time. They were expecting the prophetic message to become concretely fulfilled on earth. Their Messiah would be a person who would sit on a chair in Jerusalem, he would defeat their enemies, they would bring physical prosperity and all these physical benefits. But Jesus and the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, declare something else. That God is fulfilling those promises spiritually in Jesus. That the risen Messiah rules from heaven. His spiritual wealth uh, is what people find in association in him and in his kingdom. And the people of God look forward to the resurrection of life in John 6, Acts 2, 3, and Romans 8. Very importantly in the New Testament, this sometimes gets missed. A lot of times we talk about the fact there's a new covenant, and a lot of people think that that God has just given up on Israel. But Paul especially makes it very clear in Romans 4, Galatians 3 and 4, uh, that what God is doing is he's not abandoning Israel as much as he is recentering Israel. Paul will go back to the fact that Abraham is justified by his faith. He isn't justified by circumcision. He doesn't uh, get brownie points for being in the covenant. He obtains the covenant through faith. And therefore, he's trying to make the argument that you can be a child of Abraham, even though you're not a physical descendant, because you share in Abraham's faith. And it doesn't matter if you have the DNA of Abraham if you don't share in Abraham's faith. That's the core, one of his core arguments in Romans and Galatians. And that means that this new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 31 
can come to pass in Jesus. That in Jesus there is this change in law and priesthood, absolutely, that allows for the atonement of sin without the animal sacrificial system. But it's not that Israel's gone away. The Israel of God is now the people of God who are those who are Jewish, Gentile, of all the nations who share in the faith of Abraham and believe in Jesus, the Son of God. That the church is really the new Israel. That's what God intended. And so Jesus fulfills Amos 3.7. He, he provides the way forward. He will live and he will die. He will rise from the dead. He ascends. He will reign as the Lord in heaven until the day of his return, upon which he will judge the world and everyone will go to their, their eternal destinies. In Matthew 16, 21, 22, 24 through 25, and John 14, 15, and 16. And all of this is being done in the new Israel of God, the church, the people of God who share in the faith of Abraham. And in so doing, Jesus is also providing judgment on the physical Israel for rejecting their Messiah. That those who they hate will come and destroy their holy city and their temple. And it will never be rebuilt, just as Daniel had seen in Daniel 9, and Jesus spoke of earlier in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 as well. And that's really the powerful message of his cleansing of the temple. In Luke 19, and in verse 45, we can use uh, the Lucan account, Luke 19 and verse 45, where Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's quoting Jeremiah 7.11. And when he does says that, when he's, he's challenging legitimacy of the pre-priests and Sadducees. And he's saying that they're trying to atone for their sins somehow. That they're, They think that the temple's existence will somehow protect them, even though they continue in all of the sin uh, and this, this disobedience to God. Uh, but what he's saying is that the, that temple is going to suffer the same fate as the temple that Jeremiah had spoken against in Jeremiah 7. And that's why the chief priests, by the way, want to, uh, will kill Jesus. The Pharisees didn't really like Jesus and conspired against him, but it's the chief priests who really do him in because he threatened their power base. He threatened the temple. And if and, and, and said the were impossible to the Jews to believe you know, the idea that Yahweh would abandon his temple again into the hands of the uncircumcised Gentiles. Um... And so that blasphemy had to be punished, and that's why they worked to kill him in Luke 19, 20, 22, and 23. It's very interesting to see how John brings these themes together in John 2, because Jesus cleanses the temple, and he makes his indictment that way. And then when people ask him, well, what is the sign that you do because you're doing these things? You know, what legitimacy do you have for doing this? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. And, of course, they're thinking he's talking about the, the physical structure. And they're saying, it's taken us 46 years to build this thing, and you're going to tear it, build it up in three days? But John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so you see that paradigm shift there, that now the temple, is, it's not about that structure. It's not about all the promises God had made in that covenant in, in terms of that physical, that now Jesus was the, the center of it, and that God was now uh, maintaining his temple in Jesus and those who would be in Jesus' body. Um in the resurrection, and in the church and its composite individuals. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and Ephesians 2, 20. And that is why the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70, the year 70 is so important for Christianity. Because it is Jesus' vindication. It is the demonstration that Jesus was right. That Remember Moses said, uh, you know a false prophet because they say things they don't take place? Well, here's a great demonstration. Who else predicted the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem before it happened so as to provide a way forward? The rabbis didn't. The Pharisees didn't. The Sadducees sure didn't. 
when the rabbis got, the Pharisees got together who had become the rabbis, and they got together to pave a way forward, they tried to hearken back to things that Jeremiah and Ezekiel had said during the first exile. And, but yet, there had been no revelation to do so at this time, in the second exile. For over 1900 years since, no one has been able to perform the law of Moses as written. Most honest commentators about uh, modern Judaism recognize that it is only as old as Christianity, that what passes for modern Judaism uh, grew out of the rubble of, of 70, uh, of the changes uh, that were demanded by the end of Second Temple Judaism. And, and you combine that with the fact that most of the time, the Romans, Romans are very superstitious people. They did not want any god angry at them. And so if they had to destroy a temple, they would normally rebuild it. But they never allowed the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which is aberration in Roman policy. And how it's such a demonstration of the hand of God. And it, it warns for said that because there's so many who remain in, in, in that belief system and, and cling tenaciously to their traditions. But yet it is clear that it is Jesus who is the prophet who spoke of those things and who provided the way forward for the people of God not the rabbis. It's Jesus who points that way forward. And so just as the Israelites, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, recognized the prophets were vindicated and their ancestors were wrong in rejecting the message, so we can see Jesus and the early Christians are vindicated when Jerusalem is destroyed and that the Jews were very wrong in rejecting his message. And so it's only in Jesus of Nazareth that a way forward can be found for the Israel of God. Now maybe you've heard this said, or maybe you've heard somebody speak this, or it's in a song or something. Jesus was born to die. The sentiment seems very uh, prevalent, and it's a magnification and glorification of Jesus' atonement through his death and resurrection. And we don't want to underemphasize or underestimate the importance and power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Far be it from us to do so. Uh, it, it was declared from the beginning, Jesus was the Lamb of God who came into the world, in John 1, verse 29. But nevertheless, it's a very impoverished view to say that Jesus just was born to die. The New Testament never says that, and for good reason. Because Jesus died need to live life and experience temptation without sin to fulfill all that was spoken of him in Matthew 5 and Hebrews 4.15. But he had to be the prophet, like Moses, to point the way forward for the Israel of God. And it's very easy for us just to take that for granted. But it was a very important part of what he did. Likewise, his role as a prophet doesn't mean he's just a prophet. He had authority like no other prophet before him as the Son of God, Matthew 7, 20 and 29. Like Ezekiel and Daniel, he spoke of himself as the Son of Man, but not as any Son of Man, but the Son of Man, the one who was going to receive that kingdom that Daniel uh, foresaw, uh, the one receiving from the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. His prophecies focused on the kingdom that he would obtain from the Father, over which he would rule as king. So Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is the prophet who was to come into the world, the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man, the King. We've continually looked at Revelation at this, because John sees Jesus at the beginning of the Revelation. And he sees, we've seen this interesting character, where he's called like a Son of Man, but he's spoken of in terms of characteristics of the Ancient of Days, which show he is the Son of God, God, but also Son of Man, still human. So he's fully God, fully human. Well, it's important to know why. Why does John Jesus appear to John? Well, John Jesus appears to John so that to tell him the things that are and the things that will come to pass. He comes to John so that he can prophesy. 
and he prophesies the present heavenly scene, the persecution that will come from the Roman power, the victory of Jesus as the Lamb over the pagan Roman power, the period of time between the Roman powers and, and the end of time, and a portrayal of the resurrection of life in the new heavens and the new earth, the end as the beginning, that all things are reconciled back to God in the core of Revelation. And so Jesus appears to John as the Son of God and the Son of Man in order to prophesy as the prophet. And so we need to always keep that in mind. Yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he is the Son of Man, the Christ, the King. But he's also the prophet. And his prophetic ministry is of the greatest importance. So let us hold firm to everything that Jesus has spoken and serve him. We're again glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you'd like to talk more about Jesus as a prophet or more of the other aspects of Jesus' life, maybe you haven't begun to serve Jesus and you want to learn how to become a Christian and to follow the Lord Jesus. Or maybe you just need to talk about some other issue. Maybe you need a prayer request. Maybe go through the difficulties and need to talk. Any, anything, any way we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or you can check out the Venice Church of Christ online at VeneceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Google+, Meetup, Twitter, and now YouTube as well. Mostly at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.